land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm your host today, Pete Borgen, and we're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by uh, Cameron Cusher from REA Group, one of Australia's top and best known property market analysts. Uh, Cam, welcome. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Pete. Now, we've spoken before, Cameron, and I guess most of our listeners all know who you are, but um, just want to give us a 30-second rundown on who you are, your background, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm the Director of Economic Research at uh, REA Group and PropTrack business there. Um, We're a property data company. Obviously, most people will be fairly familiar with realestate.com.au, which is the biggest brand of the REA Group. But they also own a mortgage broking business, um, the Flatmates website, uh, Real Commercial, a number of websites. And my job is basically to look at the housing market and the trends and talk about what's happening in the housing market. Thank you. Now, you might be able to answer this question. I'm sure you can. So PropTrack actually has a housing market index now, doesn't it? So uh, previously, people looked at some of your competitors' indices. Um, so PropTrack, that, that now has a monthly housing market index for things like prices and rents and so on? It, it definitely does. Uh, and I think the, the key difference between the PropTrack Home Price Index and some of the other ones is uh, that it is available monthly at the end of the month and it is fully revised uh, every single month. And we do find that that does tend to make a little bit of a difference in the reading of the market, particularly when there's strong momentum one way or another, where, whether that's prices falling or prices rising. Um, getting that revision to encapsulate all of the data is is really important. It does tend to tell a slightly different story. Yes, because sometimes the, uh, the different data providers have different results. And I remember some of the blog posts years ago explaining all the different methodologies and it could sometimes make your brain hurt a little bit. But um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, certainly the, the PropTrack index has been uh, slightly different um, in terms of the depth of the downturn, I guess some of the other uh, providers saw sort of bigger drops and then uh, bouncing back much more quickly. But I guess there's no one specific way, I suppose, to measure the housing market activity. 
There's definitely not. And I think if you look at most of the indices, the story is very similar. The difference is the magnitude and speed of things. Um, and that can just come down to differences in methodologies. Um, obviously, some of them are monthly unrevised. Ours is monthly revised. And then you've got others that are quarterly that do take in more data, but they're available more slowly or less regularly um, than those weekly or daily or, or monthly indices are. That makes sense. So, uh, Cam, one of the main questions I wanted to get you on to discuss. Uh, so the environment at the moment, uh, particularly for people like me who work in buyer's agency, there's just nothing for sale. Like it, yeah. there's, there's properties on the market, but actually when you get um, a property that uh, ticks a lot of the boxes, as they say, or is you know, in a reasonably good location, maybe something that doesn't need too much work, there's suddenly there's buyers everywhere and all over it. Um, and there's just not very much good quality stock around. So I know this can sometimes happen at various points in the year, but uh, it seems to be ongoing and quite chronic at the moment. So I guess my first and main question to you is why aren't people listing their properties more? And is there any sign of that changing? Or if not, when is it going to change? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's one we struggle with. Obviously, um, the REA group, realestate.com.au, is largely a listings portal. So people putting properties on the market is pretty important for our business. Uh, if we look at the number of new listings in April, they were down 23.5% from last year. Total listings are up 5.6%. But if you think about how people look for property, you basically, you start your journey and you look at everything that's available for sale and you either are interested in what's available or you're not, but then you're hanging out for those new listings to come onto the market if you've decided you don't want to buy what's on the market. And the real challenge at the moment is there's so few of those properties coming onto the market. In terms of the reasons why, uh, I think obviously the big one is that interest rates are changing every single month and people are just unsure whether it's a great time to list or not. Um, in saying that, we have seen that rebound in prices so far this year. We've also seen quite a significant upswing in the number of sales occurring as well. So there's definitely buyers back um, so far at the start of this year. Some of the other feedback we're getting is people know that they can sell their property, but there's nothing for them to go to. So it's like it, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that, yes, I can sell my property, but what do I buy? Where do I go next? Um, I think one of the points that's not spoken about so much as well is the tightness of the rental market. Because of where interest rates are now, a lot of people are being told they have to sell their property before they can buy, which means there's a need to transition through the rental market. And because there's no stock available in the rental market, again, I think that's discouraging people from listing because especially if you've got an area that you're living in, you want to stay in that area, you know, your kids are in school, you don't want to move outside of the school zone. Uh, because then you might have to change schools and you don't know when you're going to be able to get back in the market. So obviously the tightness of the rental market's a real challenge for renters, but it's also discouraging people from bringing their properties to the market because they have to transition through that market. That sort of does make a lot of sense. So yes, certainly the rental market is pretty tight. We, we might come on and talk a bit more about that uh, later on. I think uh, when I look at what's happening overseas in countries like the US where most people are on uh, sort of long fixed rate mortgages and suddenly uh, the mortgages have gone from 2% to 7%. I can understand why the market's kind of frozen up over there. I think if you'd have asked me a year ago though in Australia and if you just said, well, the cash rate target is going to go from zero to nearly 4% in, in rapid 
uh, time. I, I probably would have expected a lot more fallout. Um, and yet here we are, as you said, prices rebounding um, and people aren't selling. I, I guess, you know, um, there's, we're pretty close to full employment. Everyone who wants a job by and large has got one, very low vacancy rates. Um, so that all kind of makes sense. And then maybe people have seen previous downturns and the market's just rebounded. So this time they're just going to sit things out. What about um, the seasonality factor? I know that quite often they talk about the um, you know the spring selling season in Australia. Do you think that uh, listings would start to to pick up as we get round towards that time of year? So we're very cautious as a business not to forecast listings, but but what I, I guess I can say is that if we look at last spring, there was no bounce in listings last spring. Um, so basically ever since interest rates have started rising, we've been seeing this drop off in the number of properties to the market. Now, people can only hold off putting properties for sale for so long. So I think there will be a point that we do start to see more properties come onto the market. When we're talking to real estate agents, they're saying to us that the message they're trying to get to their potential vendors is put your property on the market now because there's a lot more buyers out than there were, you know, through last year. Prices are starting to rebound and there's not a lot of competition. Um, so that's really the ideal situation to sell. Um, I think the problem, though, is, as you said, the seasonality, when we get to winter like we're just about to enter, people say, well, I'll hold off until spring. I guarantee that in spring you're not going to have a lot more competition. We're not going to have seen another couple of interest rate hikes and the market might be a lot tougher. I do think we'll see more stock coming to the market on spring just because we usually do. Um, but, you know, a lot more supply on the market could actually lead to prices starting to fall again, um, especially if it comes on the back of, you know, increased mortgage stress, a few more interest rate hikes. So I think people that are thinking about selling need to think long and hard about, you know, when's the right time to sell and what are the conditions you want to sell in? And, and I think they would discover that what we're seeing right now is the time that you should be trying to sell other than hanging on for the uncertainty of what might happen in the next three to six months. Yes, yeah, so it's quite hard to actually compare some of the year-on-year -year figures. So it has been in recent years, not just in property, but in all kinds of uh, economic data simply because it's been a weird two or three years with lockdowns interfering with the usual seasonal patterns and so on. I saw some um, analysis from Tarek Brooker uh, this week and he was talking about the the total number of advertised dwellings but then he was looking at almost on a per capita basis so um, so I think his point being that you know if you went back say 10 years ago obviously the population of Australia was quite a lot smaller this week went through 26 and a half million. So would you generally expect there, as the population grows, to be actually more, more properties in total advertised on the market? You would think so. And that's it's something as a business, I think we've been struggling to grasp why that isn't the case. And I think it really talks to, to a few things. Uh, I think firstly, if we look over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of incentives for people, particularly first home buyers, to purchase brand new properties. And we have seen a big increase in construction. So if people are choosing mm. to buy a new home rather than an existing home, then perhaps that is contributing to fewer properties on the market. But I think more generally, it's just the case that the transactional costs with the property have increased quite significantly over that period of time. And you know, we, we talk a lot about stamp duty and land tax and you know, a broad land tax would capture everyone. Stamp duty punishes those people that have to move on a regular basis. 
So basically, if you're in a principal place of residence, the easiest way to avoid any tax or any penalty for owning your own home is to not sell. So I think that's a, that, that's a big part of the argument. And we particularly see this in the more affluent areas of the major capital cities that people hold on to their properties a lot longer than they do in the less affluent, the cheaper areas. And that's really, uh, I guess, because a lot of people are using those cheaper areas as a stepping stone into the market and are more likely to turn over that stock on a much more regular basis than if you've got a large house in the inner city that really meets all your needs. Um, so we definitely think stamp duty is one of the issues um, and other transactional costs are an issue as well, but also the big surge in, in new housing construction over the past decade has contributed to the fuel properties coming onto the market. Yeah, you've explained that point beautifully, Ashley. Um, that does make a lot of sense in terms of the, uh, the second-hand property market, not as much uh, for sale. And um, yeah, certainly the, the stamp duty um, the, I suppose some of those taxes were introduced with much lower property prices in mind. And now uh, the idea of paying, writing a six-figure check for people to, to trade up, uh, not very attractive. A lot of people would probably rather stay put and try and renovate if they can. And on that point on the construction um, part of the market, so we had the big building boom around a decade ago. Um, now, construction costs have gone up a lot over the last three years or so, especially of some of those medium density developments. Um, so what's happening in the construction sector with new housing supply? I guess the, the general theme was there was a lot of properties under construction and we had real shortages of materials and labor. So what about the, the pipeline of uh, properties uh, still to come onto the market? Is that now starting to contract or is there still a lot still to be built? So there's still a very high number of properties under construction nationally. It's been pretty much every quarter a record high. The most recent quarter of data we've got, which is December last year, slightly below the all-time high. So there is a lot of stock under construction still. And basically the reason for this is a house used to take six months to build. Now, you know, a builder will put down the slab and might not come back to that house for another 18 months because they've got so much work on or they can't find the materials. Equally, you know, a high-density development might have taken three and a half years to build now, but because of labour shortages and cost uh, cost challenges, that could take five years. So there's still a lot of stock under construction. What is starting to happen, though, is that pipeline of new construction is really thinning out. Um, now, again, we've only got the data up to December last year in terms of commencements, uh, but that's fallen for each of the last four quarters, or five quarters rather, um, so it's trending much lower. Uh, and then if we look at the monthly building approvals data, we've seen that that's weakened off quite significantly. Now, why is that Why is that reducing? I think there's a few reasons. Um, the materials that go into housing construction are up about 11.5% over the past year. A couple of quarter, quarters ago, they were rising at about 17%. So it's very hard for a developer to tell you, A, when your property is going to be delivered, uh, and B, what the final price of that property is going to be. So I think that's discouraging people from going and buying brand new properties. Um, you've also got prices have fallen in the established market, but they're rising in the uh, in the new homes market. So you've got this widening, widening gap between what an existing house costs and what a brand new house costs. And I think for a lot of people, it's just, well, if I buy something established, I know what it is. I can walk in now. Um, and that's the preference for a lot of them. Now, we're still seeing from our site a lot of views 
um, for new homes. We have seen a pullback in inquiry. Um, and I think it's, it, it's just the case that uh, at the moment, that price uncertainty is really discouraging people from buying brand new properties. When you talk to developers, they say, you know, we can get pre-sales um, and we can get sales when the stock is completed, but it's very difficult to get any interest in a project while it's under construction. I was at a uh, conference about 12 or 13 months ago and I was talking to a manager who uh, manages development projects for clients and I, I sort of was chatting to him and I, I was asking whether he was um, recommending to clients to hold off because uh, construction costs were so high and I was thinking, well, maybe they might come back down again. And his view was, well, the construction costs, there was still a lot of pressure on prices. Uh, this is a year or so ago. And generally speaking, construction costs can be quite sticky. So they go up, but they just they never quite come back down again. Um, and a year on, well, he's been proven correct because uh, costs haven't come down at all. And it did occur to me just driving around, uh, a bit on holiday um, over the past week, and just around some parts of the country, I was thinking, well, actually, some of these established properties are probably – uh, they must cost um, less than they would um, the replacement value because building costs are so high. Uh, do you think um, construction cost pressures, uh, do you guys measure that? And are they starting to ease at all? Do you think they might come back down or is that um, are they still relatively um, high and under pressure at the moment? We don't really measure it as such. We, I mean, we look at the um, producer price indices data and we can see that the rate of growth has come down. Um, the other thing we do is talk to a lot of developers now, when you talk to a property developer, they're pretty adamant that those costs aren't going to come down, um, which is interesting because you've got this widening gap, as I said, between you and existing. But also, if you've got a lot fewer properties coming through the pipeline, then you're going to find that a lot of tradies are scratching around trying to find work uh, in probably 12 to 18 months' time when we do get all of these projects to completion. So whilst they're generally fairly adamant that prices won't come down, uh, I can see that tradespeople are going to be looking for work in a, in a year or two's time and maybe that does lead prices to fall. I guess the question for developers are if, if the tradespeople costs come down, are they going to actually reduce the prices on their homes? Maybe, maybe they won't. Um, but I, I can see um, some of those uh, cost escalation pressures certainly easing as we work our way through this big backlog of properties that are under construction. One of the funny things with inflation, that prices always seem to go up very easily, but they don't necessarily want to come back down uh, quite so um, adamantly. Um, let's talk a bit about the rental market, which you mentioned just before. I, I guess there's all these different ways that people measure rents. There's um, there's an asking rents um, index out there with one of the private data providers, and then there's, um, uh, I guess you guys have got uh, your... Uh, rental index and there's a couple of others and then there's the official inflation figures from the abs which are showing lower increases in rents so i assume that's just a um uh, to some degree a lag effect because uh, i guess new newly advertised properties on the market are only a certain proportion it takes time to flow through to the official inflation figures but what are you guys seeing is the rental market still uh, tight in the capital cities is there any sign of any changes there yeah, it's uh, as you said, I think what we see with the CPI data is that it does take into all account all rents. Uh, when you're looking at advertised rents, it's a relatively small cohort of all those properties that are available for rent. So you would find that CPI does tend to lag. 
Uh, in terms of rents, so if we look at advertised rents over the last 12 months, we've got them up 13% across the capital cities, up 4.4% uh, over the regional markets. Um, so we're continuing to see quite an escalation in rents in capital cities. We've seen double digit uh, increases in advertised rents in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, uh, Adelaide, Perth. Uh, we're starting to see rental pressures ease in Canberra, Hobart and Darwin. If we look at other metrics though, so in terms of rental, the number of rental properties advertised, um, so nationally the number of new listings was 2% lower than a year ago in April, but the total number of properties available for rent was down 8.5%. And again, we can see some disparity uh, across different parts of the market. So in, in regional markets, the number of properties available for rents up 20.8% from a year ago. In the metropolitan markets, it's down 16.5%, but that's really being driven by falls of more than 15% in Sydney, falls of almost a third uh, over the year in Melbourne and falls of almost 20% in Perth. Um, elsewhere, we've seen you know moderate increases in rental stock in Brisbane and Adelaide, the, rent, the number of rental properties is up uh, listed for rent is up 66% from a year ago in Hobart, 36.5% from a year ago in Canberra. So it's a really mixed story. Um, supplies increasing a little bit in Brisbane and Adelaide, but it's still very low on a historic basis. And things are continuing to tighten at a rapid pace in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. But it's much more prevalent in those inner city areas. If you break down the city, uh, into SA4 regions, for example, you can see in Sydney, the number of properties available for rents climbing in Balkan Hills and Hawkesbury, climbing on, in the outer southwest, climbing in the central coast. In Melbourne, it's only those three inner SA4 regions uh, really that's driving the reduction in rents. We're seeing some increases in places like the Mornington Peninsula and pretty small falls uh, elsewhere across Melbourne. So is this basically a reversal of what we saw during the pandemic where everybody moved outwards and now they're, they're kind of re reverting back uh, closer to the office, closer to Sydney? Or that, Sydney? That's exactly, uh, exactly right. You know, we have people that moved away during the pandemic are now moving back. Um, now, partly that's maybe the lifestyle where they moved regionally uh, wasn't quite what they were expecting. Uh, I know you live on the Sunshine Coast. I've, I've heard a lot of anecdotes from Melbourne agents telling me that, you know, people moved to the sunny coast uh, because I love going to Nusa for four weeks a year, but it was a bit of a different story. <laughs> a bit of a different story living there for you know some yeah, of the, the rental market has softened. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's, there's um, I, th I think partly as well just a pushback because the rents went yeah. so high. You know, there's properties on the market for twenty five hundred dollars a week and you know two thousand a week, which you know they're great properties. Don't get me wrong, but when you add that up over the course of a year, for a lot of people, it's just not sustainable. I think there's. No. I think people were prepared to pay for a, a short period during the pandemic, but now people are like, well, hang on, you know, I want a bit more for my money here. And um, yeah. it's, it's definitely coming down. And I'm sure that's probably been mirrored in places like Mornington, the Blue Mountains. Yeah. I was down the East Coast this week. Uh, you know, some of those uh, uh, far North Coast markets in New South Wales, the same. They're definitely a lot quieter than they were. Um, Cam, I had a question for you. This is actually quite a big subject. Um, Housing supplies all over the media. Um, yeah. One of the sort of the silver bullet um, recommendations is the build to rent sector, and it's well practically every day in my inbox. There's another uh, another institution raising funds to go into build to rent in Australia. We've got Stockland, Mervac. Uh, I think Mervac are planning five thousand units. Lendlease, Scape, and then also 
uh, institutions from overseas like Graystar, Sentinel, uh, I think Grocon. You know, there's a whole range of people getting into the space. Um, so at a, at a high level, let's talk a little bit about what Build to Rent is, and then let's uh, get your views on what you think uh, might actually happen. So I guess um, Build to Rent, as we saw uh, we in the United Kingdom now, it's about 20% of new housing is built to rent. And in London, it's about 40%. So it's really taken off almost exponentially. And um, I guess what we'd probably expect to see in Australia is um, uh, sort of new unit developments close to transport hubs but where people can uh, basically sign up for like a three-year lease or something like that. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's that's basically the crux of the built-to-rent sector. It's something we haven't seen too much of in Australia historically, uh, but it's a growing sector of the market. We saw in the, the federal budget that um, they've offered incentives to make built-to-rent more attractive, and we know state governments have done that as well. I think that the challenge with built-to-rent is, yes, it's a new source of demand, but if you look over the next sort of five years, it's still a very small supply of additional rental stock. I think I was at a, a presentation the other week and it was about 26,000 units uh, scheduled to be delivered over the next five years or so. So it's still pretty smaller, growing obviously, um, but I don't think it's the answer to the situation we're in in the rental market at the moment. The other thing with the build to rent sector is that it's often priced at a premium to established stock. Now, if you build enough of it, you'll bring down the, the price of the older stock. But again, we're nowhere near the magnitude of build to rent or the scale that's going to bring down prices significantly at the lower end of the market. I think there is a, a bit of a missed opportunity whereby we're offering all these incentives for build to rent, um, but we're not kind of saying to these providers, you know, you need to provide some affordable rentals uh, in these projects as well. And I think the other challenge as well is a core is a big corporate actually going to give you a better outcome as a renter than, you know, a, a, an individual or couple that invest in a property and it's really their only investment outside of their own home. Um, historically, we know that most of the housing in Australia has been provided by individuals that, you know, buy rental properties and lease them out to people. Um, yeah, is, is Yes, you're going to have the option to have a longer tenancy in a build to rent, but overall, you know, when something breaks, when something's not working, are you going to get a better outcome when rents come up for renewal? Are corporates going to be maybe as kind as some inv some investors are and not push through significant increases in rents? And I guess only time will tell, but I think that's certainly some of the things that people should be a little bit cautious about in this sector. Yeah, that's um, it's very interesting. I think uh, just a couple of observations from what I've seen in London, I think on the plus side, the security of tenure, your landlord's not going to sell up after six months and tell you to, to move out. So I think that that is appealing for some people, especially um, uh, young professionals who maybe want to work in the same job for a few years in one location. I think landlords are generally, uh, institutional landlords are unlikely to evict uh, an elderly tenant just because of the bad press. You know, I think there's, there's certainly that element to it. I think... Um, there's been some downsides, though. I think um, uh, in London, I saw there's there's a project um, uh, in Elephant and Castle, but it, it transpired that something like four thousand social housing units have been demolished. And yes, there was new build to rent coming up, but then there was just enormous pressure on social housing, and the waiting lists in the the borough are just unbelievable. And I suppose another thing I saw I was, I was 
tracking a project I was interested in in Manchester, where the initial uh, net rental yields uh, for the institution, I probably won't mention the the, the landlord, but it was about 3.6%, but they were sort of analysing it and they said it had gone up to 39 and next year they expected it to go to 4 because the rents are going up. And I, I thought, well, this isn't really an affordable housing solution if the, the goal is just to push up rents ahead of inflation wherever possible. Um, so I suppose those are some of the things that might uh, uh, be worth watching in Australia. Now, I did have a question about whether with all of this capital being raised, whether in two or three years' time we might suddenly get this huge glut of uh, built-to-rent apartments hit the market. But it, it sounds like uh, from what you said just previously that the, the pipeline isn't yet at least big enough in Australia. No, I don't think the pipeline's big enough yet, but certainly there's the potential to get to that level. I think the other point is, um, you know, historically a lot of the apartment projects in Australia that were built to sell um, were targeted at investors. They delivered a lot of one-bedroom, one-bathroom stock or two-bedroom, one-bathroom stock for that investor market. If you talk to developers at the moment in terms of build to sell, they say they can't make those projects stack up. They basically say they make a loss on one-bedrooms and it's very hard to break even on two-bedroom, one-bathroom stock. So I think it's almost like build to rent will replace um, that investment stock that we used to get in the build to sell market. Um, again, whether that's a, a good outcome or not, uh, I'm not sure, um, but it, it, it certainly looks like it's going to be a lot harder for developers to create a build to sell product that would be attractive to investors. And I guess for people that are looking to invest directly in property, it's going to drive them more to the established market rather than that new market. It's a good point. Previously, we had a lot of uh, the new apartments used to sell to non-resident investors or foreign investors, especially uh, from mainland China. But with the introduction of the stamp duty surcharges, that kind of went away. So maybe this will replace uh, some of that rental stock. I think if you build enough of it at a big enough scale, then, as you said, it might just take the pressure off the rental market elsewhere. Um, generally, I guess when developers are looking to build, they, they want to see a double-digit return on capital to compensate for the risk. So I've seen a lot of these uh, projects in Australia talking about you know 150 units and 200 units, but it, you know I think uh, what I've seen overseas anyway really is the big-scale projects, maybe 500 in a, a development or 1,500 in a precinct. They're the sort of things that scale up. I think it's pretty difficult to. Uh, deliver profitably in some of those smaller developments. Um, uh, Cam, you mentioned just before the issues with stamp duty and how that's gumming up the market to some degree uh, because people don't want to pay the transaction costs of moving. There's been quite a few uh, discussions in recent times about a switch towards a land tax. And in, in fact, um, just last week, uh, the Victorian budget was actually talking about an increase in land tax. Um, so there's a couple of different things there. Obviously, the Victorian government had a, a budget that was in deficit. Uh, they've introduced a higher land tax to balance the books. Do you think that will have some impacts or implications for the housing market in Victoria? Yeah, I, I do think it will. I think so. Broadly, we support moving to land tax, but I think these you know small changes rather than an overhaul of the whole tax system and looking to remove stamp duty and replace it with land tax just complicate things. It's, you know, over, over the last 24 months or so, there's been this real demonisation of property investors. And property investors are there basically because the government won't provide housing for people that can't afford to 
own their own home. So it's basically up to the rental market. The implications of that increase in land tax uh, for Victoria, in my mind, is going to be twofold. The first one will be, um, you know, interest rates have already gone up a lot over the last 12 months. Um, prices have gone up a lot. So people are now getting their land tax bills and seeing that, you know, the, the rates and charges on their property is going up significantly as well. And, you know, Dan Andrews did come out and say, well, you know, you can claim the cost of the additional land tax back off the federal government, the reality is you've still got to fork that money out. You've still got to find that money. And it's not like you get all of that money back when you claim your tax deductions as well. So I think it will um, potentially push some people to exit um, residential investment. And we've already seen over the last couple of years a high number of people exiting the, the market. And the other one is people have a choice where to invest. Victoria's already got very low rental yields. Uh, it's already got some of the highest stamp, stamp, highest stamp duty uh, rates in the country. I think it will discourage people in the future in Victoria and now look for where you don't have these impediments uh, to owning an investment property, but also where prices are cheaper, stamp duty is lower and rental returns are better. And if you just go to places like Western Australia, you go to South Australia, Queensland, you, you definitely get uh, more attractive rental yields, and potentially some more attractive capital growth potential than what you're getting in uh, in Melbourne and in Victoria at the moment. One of the challenges, it seems to me, for prospective investors or landlords at the moment is that the rules seem to be changing every five minutes. Certainly in Queensland, uh, in Queensland, there seems to be a new rule proposed every couple of weeks, and then it gets changed or rolled back. And it, it's difficult. These are supposed to be, you know, 10 plus year investment decisions. And uh, if you get sort of surprises being sprung on you uh, every couple of weeks or every month, it's very difficult for people to commit. And that's obviously not helping uh, the rental market at the moment. Do you think we might see a switch um, then away from stamp duty towards land tax over the medium term? Would that have to be driven by the federal government potentially? No, I think, it, I think it's going to have to be driven by the federal government. We saw New South Wales try and then um, the coalition lost the, uh, the election and now Labor's talking about rolling back those changes. The only market that's doing it successfully seemingly is, uh, is the ACT and they're doing it over a long period of time. I think it's an important piece of reform and I think particularly from the big states, the one that can get there first, there's a real competitive advantage in offering people the option uh, well, option to pay land tax or stamp duty or, or ideally uh, land tax universally. But, yeah, look, I, I don't hold out a great deal of confidence that's going to happen, um, but certainly I think it's the right move and, and something we should be looking towards moving towards. What's the, the pushback? I guess the benefits would be uh, labour force mobility. People can move around more, so there should be productivity gains from that. Um, and I suppose from a government perspective, you'd be getting a much smoother uh, tax take instead of lumpy stamp duty uh, tax take, which is always up and down with the cycle. What, what's the uh, the point against uh, the change? Is it simply that the... The, uh, the, the takings have been too good from stamp duty and it's difficult to give up? I think it's that and I think it's also the potential lost revenue up front um, that you get by making the transition. But, you know, doing it the way uh, the ACT is doing it over a 20-year period can smooth that out. I think for a lot of governments, and, and you know, Victoria is a great example of this, they're in a lot of debt. If it could solve the debt problem, I think they'd do it tomorrow. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's some challenges with making that transition and it doesn't necessarily make the books look any better than they currently do. So I think that's why 
there's a real reluctance um, to make the change. Um, but hopefully, that, you know, if, if the housing market is softer for the next few years, state governments are going to have a lot less revenue to play with and, and maybe that will start to force their hand. But I guess we've been in this position a number of times before and we've, we've never actually made, been able to make that transition away, uh, as, as, at least in one of the big states, um, from stamp duty and toward land tax. Politics always seems to get in the way. Uh, Cam, it's brilliant to get your uh, thoughts on all of these subjects. Um, you can just cut through the noise so well and so articulately. Um, before you go, I guess I should ask you this question. Is there anything uh, you think that people should be talking about in the property market at the moment but isn't getting any coverage? I think probably the, the one thing that's not getting a lot of coverage at the moment uh, is particularly in this new housing space and uh, the fact that we're trying to deliver a million new homes over the, the five years to 2029, that's the ambition of the federal government, uh, but we don't have the capacity to deliver the housing stock we need. Um, I was recently in Western Australia and, you know, builders were saying to me, why would you do a trades apprenticeship when you can go up to the mines completely unskilled and earn, you know, $150,000 a year? I think it's all great to have ambitions to build more housing and, and that's something that we should aim for, but no one's really talking about the capacity to deliver the housing we need. Um, one of the other pieces of feedback we often get is there's so many big infrastructure projects going on around the country that state governments are you know, attracting the people that would have been build, building houses to go and do these infrastructure projects because, you know, the, the payment terms are better, um, you know, there's a lot of funding there, costs are not as much of a concern as they are in a, in a small margin business like home building. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed that no one's really talking about very much. It's a good point. I guess there's somebody who went to work in the resources sector during the mining boom years and people were talking about Dutch disease and I think that was probably drawing a bit of a long bow but nevertheless uh, there are some conflicting uh, challenges there if we're building infrastructure uh, resources projects need more construction um, as they extend their life on some of these big projects and it was at the same time we're trying to build a million homes plus in five years that's a lot of uh, materials and a lot of trades that's needed and a lot of labour at a time when uh, things have been stretched tight all over the economy. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting to see how all that plays out. Um, Cameron, thanks so much for coming on. If people want to find out a bit more about your work and uh, REA's reports and the prop track ind indexes and so on, where should they go to for more? Yeah, so there's a, a website called REA Insights that hangs off realestate.com.au. So if you just Google REA Insights, uh, a lot of the information is available there. Uh, follow me on Twitter at CM Kusha, um, or yeah, I'm regularly talking to the media and, and out there. So there's lots of great uh, great resources there. Of course, come to the realestate.com.au website and have a look at your property, have a look at what's available for sale and have a look at all the stats and information about uh, properties and suburbs around the country. Fantastic. Yeah, there's some great insights there. And uh, of course, realestate.com.au. I spent way too much time on that website planning my move to the Whit Sundays when the Powerball win comes in. So, uh, yes, yeah, so brilliant. Thank you, Cam. Thanks so much. I look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. 
If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.